Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Allison Jones was the casting director behind many of the most beloved comedies of the last few decades, among them Freaks and Geeks, which involved open auditions across the United States and Canada and introduced the world to then-child actors James Franco, Linda Cardellini, Seth Rogen, Jason Segel, and Martin Starr. So how do you cast a female lead in a funny movie when that female lead might be kind of incidental, you know, just the the male lead's wife and they don't get any jokes or whatever? They are thankless roles. I don't know what else to say. I think they must be. I can't speak for the actors themselves, but they must be thankless roles because still attractiveness matters to all these directors and studios mostly. You know, I don't want to name any names, but studio, various studios all the way back to 40-year-old Virgin passed on some now very famous women um, who they just didn't think were pretty enough to do one of the supporting female roles. So funny doesn't – I don't think funny matters to them. I think they'll say it does, but still they only look first at what they see. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to actor Chiwetel Ejiofor. He was nominated for an Oscar for his performance in 12 Years a Slave. The experience taught him that being an artist wasn't something he'd ever be able to finish. You're always striving for something, some intangible. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever even get to the root of understanding what it possibly is for me. It's not financial, I know that. It's not accolades, I'm aware of that. It's something else, and uh, I don't know if I've even scratched the surface of finding what works. Ejiofor and I will talk about creative ambition and getting into the jujitsu ring with David Mamet. Which, by the way, not a metaphor. We will literally talk about getting into a jujitsu ring with acclaimed playwright and director David Mamet. Then later, I'll talk to casting director Allison Jones. She's responsible for discovering some of the greatest comic actors of our time and getting them onto the screen. It's persistence. It's bringing them in as many times as you need to to get them that first part. I've done that for so many. Again, not the group isn't comics, but just sort of interesting people that you want to watch and you want to listen to because they're freaking funny. And I'll tell you what jump blues singer Jimmy Witherspoon can add to the discussion around race in America. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Chiwetel Ejiofor was born in London. He started acting as a kid, and he went on to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. His first movie role in 1997 was in a Steven Spielberg film. He was cast in Amistad about a slave ship mutiny. Ejiofor has since appeared in a Woody Allen movie, played a drag queen in the film version of Kinky Boots, a revolutionary in the dystopian thriller Children of Men, and he was nominated for an Oscar for his starring role in 12 Years a Slave. Now he stars in Z for Zachariah, a post-apocalyptic movie about a couple of strangers struggling to survive in an untouched valley after a disaster has wiped out most or maybe all other civilization. Chiwetel's character makes an amazing entrance on screen in an incredible radiation suit. He's ecstatic with the knowledge that he might have finally found a safe place to stop. Let's hear a clip from Z for Zachariah. So 
Chiwetel's character, John, has appeared on the farm, which is in this protected valley, somehow uh, safe from the apocalypse. And he's been nursed back to health by Anne, who's played by Margot Robbie. He's been really, really sick, uh, confined to bed. And at this point, because of that sickness, they know almost nothing about each other. So the two have sat down to eat together, and Anne asks him where he's from. You were, you were up north when it started? Yeah. I was um, about a mile underground, though. Government facility. A bunker. Come on. Our search engineer. Well, I was. I mean, like a. Does that mean you're a scientist or something? No. Oh, really? Well, well, I was. It's cool. I was on the design team for that suit I was wearing. And it's the only reason I was able to survive as long as I did. It weren't supposed to be used long term. It's beat up now. It's damaged. So why'd you leave the bunker? Wasn't safe there anymore. Well, I was a mile underground, you know. There was no. There was no sun. There was no rain. There was no sky. There was nothing. You understand me? What I wanted from life wasn't there. So I left. Tuatel Edgefor, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, your character in the movie is, you know, spends maybe a year traveling in this weird uh, radiation suit, actually pretty fantastic radiation suit. I really like the radiation <laughs> suit, by himself or more or less by himself. And it made me wonder, what is, what's the most time that you've ever spent by yourself and, and how do you feel about being alone? Well, there's, I suppose there's different types of, uh, of aloneness, I guess. But, um, but in total isolation, you know, not seeing anybody, you know, not, I don't imagine very long. But on the whole, I don't mind being alone actually it's not something that there's it's not there's not a sense that bothers me too much uh the the time to reflect is quite interesting i read somewhere that you have a boat and and you're a sailor yeah i enjoy i mean i enjoy a bit of sailing from time to time i do have a houseboat so i don't sail that that's you know not that doesn't have any sails on it but i have in los angeles a bit of sailing and um and uh and uh, i have a houseboat in in london yeah that seems like a that seems like a sort of a reflective time, even if you're, you know, if you're on a small boat, even if there's other crew there. Yeah, I mean, I think on a on the houseboat, it's absolutely lovely to spend to spend time, you know, on a boat, and it, it is exactly that, just the reflective, you know, the water, the calm, you know, the sort of the peace of it, you know, it really is a getaway, and um, and highly enjoyable, you know, without sounding kind of sad and <laughs> lonely. <laughs> I mean, it scares the, it scares, I, the reason I ask is because it just scares the bejesus out of me. I mean, I go to the beach, even if there's a thousand people around, uh, which there is because, you know, I live in Los Angeles, but like if I look out at the horizon of the water, mm-hmm. I find it deeply discomforting. Is that a fact? You find it discomforting to look out of the horizon of the water? Yeah, because it seems so infinite. It seems like, uh, I don't know, it's like, you, it's like staring at the specter of death. But what do you think of the sky? Like, do you have the same reaction to when you look up as to when you look out? Somehow I feel like the sky is like, uh, the sky is like a protective, 
is like a protective thing, and the the sea is like I could be consumed by it. Ah, interesting. It's very tempting, isn't it? Sometimes just to wade out into the water and just drift off. <laughs> no, you be, not you clearly, at all. You clearly, you clearly don't find that. <laughs> this is what, no what, such uh, temptation. Yeah, what's what what star sign are you? If you don't mind me asking, I'm a Taurus. Ah, well, I'm a Cancerian. I don't generally believe in these things, but this would seem to be supported in our conversation. <laughs> um, you grew up in, in England in a Nigerian family. Your, your folks uh, are and were Nigerian. Did you grow up in a Nigerian community? Uh, no, I grew up in, uh, in, in, in Forest Gate, which was uh, a pretty mixed community then. Uh, quite mixed, I suppose, white and Indian and uh, some black, but mostly white and Indian, and these days mostly Indian. When you spent time in Nigeria, did you, was it just as a visitor or was it ever like longer length of time? Was it ever like, you know, summer between school years or something? No, it was always, it was always short amounts of time when I was a kid, you know, like it was always, uh, you know, a couple of weeks here and a couple of weeks there. In I mean, in the summer, but not for the whole run of the summer. My sister... Uh, both my sisters actually spent time in school in Nigeria later on, which I, was something that I kind of wished that I had done as well, but I didn't, um, not through my own choice, just because that's the way, you know, that my parents didn't send me to school in Nigeria. But both my sisters did for, I think, about uh, each of them for about a year or so. And so therefore have much more ability with the with the language, uh, Igbo, in the east of Nigeria, and um, and then also made kind of a couple more kind of school friends, whereas my friends were always my relatives that were my age, you know, or similar age to me, my cousins and whatever. But only in later life did I get to spend more time in Nigeria. And uh, and I've worked in Nigeria, you know, I made a film in Nigeria not long ago, and so I've been able to spend sort of slightly more and more time there. You know, you're in an interesting place uh generationally as somebody who you know you're in your late 30s now and your parents and grandparents were parts of generations that saw incredible change in Africa uh in Nigeria and um in the, the sort of um you know in the kind of pan-african diaspora um and i wonder at, like at what point you started to realize that about your family as you were living a kind of middle-class English life that these direct family members of yours had been through, you know, the rejection of colonialism and uh, all of these, you know, all of these changes in addition to emigration? My introduction to all of it came through my, my grandfather, you know, who on my, on my mother's side, who I suppose, you know, led... Up until the war, up until 1967, uh, led probably one of the, the 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 most kind of affluent middle class lifestyle of any of us, you know. Uh, so when he was not much older than me, uh, he was uh, a, an accountant for the mining corporation in the north of Nigeria, um, and that was up until you know after independence. So he from before independence into the mid 50s. Uh, till you know, I think around sixty three, sixty four, and just before, as an Igbo, you know, just before the pogrom started against the Igbos, um, and so as he would tell the stories of that and the kind of affluence of that, you know, the sort of the wealth that he personally had up in the north, it was interesting that that wasn't that was not a Nigeria that I'd ever really 
understood or had kind of had any reference for because growing up in England in the 80s, essentially, the images of Africa were always post the Biafran Civil War, where the first real images of like Kwashoka, children with swollen bellies, flies in the eyes, the kind of staple images of Africa were first kind of proliferated at that time. And they became, uh, and to a large degree still are, the standard images of Africa. So the idea of my grandfather and playing golf or, uh, you know, polo in the 50s, was not an image and an understanding that I had. It was one of the uh, kind of interesting things about doing Half of a Yellow Sun, that all of these people, the professors at the University of Insukit, which is not far from where my grandfather was, and it was, uh, the, and in fact, Chimamanda Adichie, uh, whose uh, father is a professor at the University of Insukit, you know, and, uh, and so she based this character, Odenable, in some ways on that, inevitably. Um, and their lifestyle, you know, their lifestyle before the Civil War being one of uh, of kind of affluence and this firm regard for uh, for education and the development of education. Uh, in a way, after the war, my grandfather's life changed for good. What most surprised you when you heard your grandfather's story? I think what was surprising, I mean, there were so many things, but just how actively politicized everything was and how... Um, you know, the, the way that uh, Empire ran was actually, I think, you know, very surprising to me that there was, uh, that there were, uh, that it was clearly being organized in order to control Nigeria and control the finance of Nigeria, of course, but with a certain degree of respect for the population. There was an idea, I suppose, for some people that the best the best run, the best run kind of concepts of empire are, are what one would call, I guess, a kind of an idea of sort of soft empire. So um, a kind of a strange benevolence, you know, to uh, to the populations that that would exist. Say, I mean, the distinctions would be say the way that the British Empire reacted to uh, Canada and or white Australia, as opposed to the way the British Empire reacted to India and. You know, black Africa, you, you, uh, that if there was a kind of benevolence, essentially to say if racism was taken out of it, you had much more, a, a larger reach and influence over that population, the, uh, which actually in the case of Canada and Australia, Britain today still has a sort of gentle, soft kind of, you know, benevolent, empiric version. The Queen is still on the notes. Um, so, you know, my grandfather would tell stories of how about, you know, every June, the, uh, everybody was called in, all the senior staff and everybody, uh, the Nigerian senior, senior staff were called in and they were asked to give a list of all of their children and they would give the list of the names and ages of all of their children and the, uh, and the company would then, uh, send out to Harrods of London or whatever and buy, uh, all of the Christmas presents for the entire Nigerian children, Nigerians, the staff, the, Niger, the children of the Nigerian staff, which would be shipped out from London with Father Christmas, who was a guy who would come, you know, from London and you know get in the bed and whatever, and uh, and there would be this huge Christmas party where all of these kids would be would be celebrated by the company, and uh, uh, and so all of the kids, you know, felt like that this construct um, was completely fantastic and the idea of it ever leaving would be so completely devastating and it was uh, for me when hearing my grandfather talk of that period even though knowing of course that 
But really, the uh, the completely devastating um, financial disparity that was happening throughout the country was leading towards, especially in the east and uh, the east of Nigeria, amongst the Igbos and amongst the uh, Cameroonians, uh, a real push for independence. But in the in the north and the way that the empire was run on the ground, which essentially is the reason, one of the reasons for this civil war, you know, is the way that the empire was run on the ground was actually uh, very encouraging for people to to be part of. So, um, you know, his descriptions of it and having a kind of first person account of the realities, the day to day realities and running of empire, were um, were completely fascinating to me. Your father passed when you were a kid. Um, you, you were eleven and. The two of you were in Nigeria when he died. Did it change? Did that fact change your relationship to uh, to Nigeria? It did. I mean, it um, it took me a long time to want to, um, you know, that uh, that coming back to London was a kind of was this sort of savior from this uh, this terrible kind of incident that had happened you know over there and I suppose psychologically um, the one thing that I didn't want to happen to me which was to kind of alienate Nigeria kind of happened in a way because of because of that because of that thing happening and uh, and happening in Nigeria and it seemed as if that somehow the place itself was to blame which actually is not totally inaccurate that the you know the roads, the damaged roads, driving practices, whatever. These obviously led to this car accident. I mean, but of course, the car accident could have, in the end, happened anywhere or any accident. And it took a long time for me to um, to sort of come to terms with with that, and to then you know you know reinvest, re re go, I suppose, re spend time in in uh, in Nigeria without feeling anxious or you know uh, uh, kind of worried about it uh, and it took me really until I was I think about uh, I went to Nigeria from Ghana when I was 18 and it was the first time that I'd really gone to Nigeria on my own um, and to travel on my own to travel around Nigeria on my own I mean in a kind of meandering fashion in order get to get down to the east and see my grandparents but uh, I think that was the the trip in which I was able to kind of reconnect with the place. What was different about being there um, as a as an adult or, you know, a very young adult, but an adult on your own um, rather than in this other context of sort of being swept up in, in family and, and those sorts of things? I just remember feeling it was very empowering, I think, uh, for me. It, it suddenly felt very grown up and I felt for the first time uh, like an adult and um, and I felt like I could deal with situations as they, as they arose and I could improvise and I could um, sort of, you know, live on my feet and, um, and you know, make alliances and friendships in order to smooth out bits of the transitions and get places. Uh, and it was exhilarating and it was, it, was, it was fun. And I had, you know, I'd made a sort of small TV movie called Deadly Voyage in, uh, at, uh, for HBO and the, in, um, in Ghana. And so I had a bit of money because I still had my per diems, you know. And uh, um, so I was kind of, uh, I could just sort of, I could <laughs> buy my way through certain situations and feel like a kind of, yeah, like I say, like a, like for the first time quite quite liberated and, uh, and um, you know, part of that land as well, part of Nigeria. I want to play another clip from Z for Zachariah and my guest Chiwetel Ejiofor is uh, the star of the film. Um, 
your character in the movie is uh, an engineer and uh, sort of comes upon a very young woman who's a farmer uh, in the American South somewhere, not entirely clear exactly where. But in this scene, your character, John, has has had this idea to build a water wheel um, because apparently in the previous winter, the young woman had almost died from uh, not being able to store food and wants to have electricity to run freezers and so forth. They're trying to figure out how to build it. And uh, your character sees uh, Anne, the young woman's father's chapel, and and realizes like, oh, here's some milled wood that we could use in this building that is unnecessary. Um, let's take a listen. Could we just could we use something else? Maybe. Well, we, no, we can't. We can't use the house. We need the barn. We can't use the store. It's all cinder block. No, this is it. Well. What? I mean. What? My dad built that. He he preached there every Sunday. You know? And it's because of him that we survived that, you know, that all of this survived. So. Because of your father? No, no, because of him. What if we tear down the church, we don't survive? down a church to get electricity. But we don't really need electricity. It's about rebuilding. Maybe God or your father put this here for us. It seems to me like one of the cultural conditions that is called into question in the film is race. Um... You know, there is this there is this question uh, with these two people, one of whom is white and one of whom is black in this post-apocalyptic world. You know, what things about the cultural constructs of race will be retained? Like it feels like a question uh, through the film, especially when another white person shows up. And I wonder if that was something that, you know, you took in that, that was in your mind. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is one of the ideas that the film is talking about, you know, that um, that as well as religion, um, you know, an, a, another major cultural construct is is race, especially, um, you know, in the in the United States where the film is set. The uh, so uh, initially where <clears throat> there are two people, one, like you say, Anne is white and Loomis is black, race is more or less irrelevant. I mean, there, you know, whatever the previous circumstances of, of race are, in that moment, they're, they're dealing with the fact that they're the last people on the planet and they're going to have to try and get on in some way and perhaps even uh, develop their relationship. So um, it, it, it's sort of the, the concepts of race, by definition, have to fall away. Um, maybe not immediately, but over time, they would have to. And as they build their friendship, actually, one even senses, even with them, that the things that are different about them are kind of starting to sort of dissipate. 
and they are developing a, a connection. Of course, with the arrival of Caleb, who is also white, it introduces the concept of uh, minority, of minoritization, essentially. Uh, and that becomes, I think, a, a fascinating concept because with minoritization becomes a disbalance of power. Uh, and that then, if you're dealing with these two kind of alpha males, is psychologically what they... I mean, one, Loomis being slightly more of a cerebral male than than, than Caleb, but but still people, two guys who, whether they admit it freely or not, would prefer to be in some kind of dominance of this situation. I suppose the tension that then rises out of that as, as um, Loomis probably you know tries to not be outmaneuvered and Loomis also I suppose tries to manipulate you know the situation to regain some advantage is really what drags these two guys further and further into into conflict you know Uh, my suspicion however is that the religious aspect is actually what Caleb is using more than race actually is the is the fact that Anne has faith and Caleb has faith is he is using that uh, to outmaneuver Loomis it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Chiwetel Ejiofor. His latest film is Z for Zachariah. It's in theaters now. I want to ask you a little bit about 12 Years a Slave, um, and particularly the way that it affected your life. You start in the film, which is uh, the story of a, a free man who's kidnapped into slavery and his uh, battle to regain his freedom. And uh, you were nominated for an Oscar in the film. One of the things that happens when you get an Oscar nomination and you're in a quote-unquote Oscar movie, is that you kind of live with it um, even more than you might otherwise some other film. I mean, certainly, you know, we're talking together because Z for Zachariah is coming out and, you know, uh, we want people to be able to, you know, hear about it and go see it. But, um, you know, when you get nominated for an Oscar, there's like months of your life that are dedicated to, you know, living with this thing that you made. And I wonder what it was like for you to go through the process of public reflection and to some extent self-promotion about something that is as kind of brutal and painful a story as 12 Years a Slave is. Well, I was, I mean, you know, I think that from the moment that I really uh, read Solomon Northup's uh, autobiography, I was sort of struck by how important the story was and how much of an honor and a privilege it was to express what I considered to be or thought of him as, you know. And um, uh, and to me, that was something that was quite beautiful, and I'm very proud of it, you know, The uh, and proud of the film, the, the film, the overall film that Steve McQueen made and the, and the cast. The film itself depicts a very difficult time, but I think it's, uh, and, you know, obviously in, in Solomon's life and in the history of the United States... But being able to express that, being able to show that, being able to give um, life to uh, Solomon's life and voice is, um, for me, a a thing that I'm deeply, deeply proud of and was as we were promoting the film and talking about the film. And it was, of course, you know, gratifying to see the film taken in the spirit that it was made, which was simply about human respect and human dignity and how important telling stories about like that story are as we reflect on what we do in our lives and how we affect 
other people, either positively or negatively, and what our responsibility is to them and what our responsibility is to 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 ourselves. So um so all of that worked in a way for me in a, in a with that film and I felt that it was asking the questions that I wanted to ask and uh, and it was received in that in that spirit and so it was an incredibly positive time. What were and weren't you prepared for uh for the life of being a guy who is either Oscar nominated or uh, now, um, you know, you will forever be Oscar-nominated actor Chiwetelo Ejiofor. <laughs> you know, I don't know. This is I maybe sounds strange to say it in this way, but, you know, there's a, uh, a Turkish saying, and I, I mean, I'm going to absolutely butcher this, but I think it's something like bitmiş gine, and it means, uh, from what I understand, nothing works. And, um, and I guess what I mean by that is that you, you, you always feel that there is a point that you reach where you can just at that point be like, oh, well, I did that. That was great. You know? <laughs> and um, and uh, the sad thing is nothing works, you know, that you never really get to that point. You never really feel, uh, you know, you can come off stage having been the lead actor in the film that won the Academy Award and you go backstage and you have your photograph taken, you're doing the interviews and by the time you get into your car, you're thinking, well, okay, but that's not the end of my career that's not the end of my working life that's not the end that hasn't worked that hasn't satisfied the full need and breadth of what I want to achieve I thought it might do at a certain point and certainly when I used to watch the Academy Awards I thought well that anybody who's gone up there and done those things must suddenly feel like that they could that cause that could be it I could just put my feet up and live a very happy life you know um, so uh, the realization is always that you know you're that you're always striving for something, some some intangible. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever even get to the root of understanding what it possibly is for me. It's not financial, I know that. It's not accolades, I'm aware of that. It's something, it's something else, and uh, I don't know if I've even scratched the surface of uh, of finding what works. I'll continue my conversation with Chuatelaji for after a break. We'll talk about the time he got in the jiu-jitsu ring with the celebrated playwright and director David Mamet. Who got who into a submission hold? Only one way to find out. Keep listening. No one got anyone into a submission hold. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Heads up. Hidden Brain is the brand new NPR podcast about social science you can apply throughout your life. Get a preview of Shankar Vedantam's Hidden Brain podcast beginning September 4th and learn about why arguments sometimes get off track. Find the Hidden Brain podcast at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Chiwetel Ejiofor. His latest film is Z for Zachariah. It's in theaters now. I want to ask you before I let you go, you were in a David Mamet movie called Red Belt, which was like a David Mamet martial arts action movie. And I wonder what it was like to uh, work in this kind of world where, you know, I mean, David Mamet is so David Mamety or David Mamet-ish, uh, depending on the adjective you prefer. Yeah, I just wonder what it's like to just kind of drop into that world when, especially when, you know, it's one thing if you're doing uh, revival of uh, Glengarry Glen Ross and uh, in London or something. There's another thing when you're just like standing in front of David Mamet. Yeah, 
I wonder. I just kind of wonder what it was like to be like there with David Mamet doing uh, whatever it was, Taekwondo or uh, Jeet Kune Do or whatever you were doing. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, and I think it was true for a lot of actors, you know, and I and I would tell him in the you know later on, and when we were when we were working on Red Belt, that he's the only person that I ever worked with that in you know that I that some and at a completely different point in my life I once studied you know and um you know he was you know certainly going out you know going from school and being sort of familiar with his place in high school and then going into drama school where David Mamet became a kind of mythological figure almost you know uh he uh and you know with, with his books on drama his books on acting uh, he was kind of just you know larger than life this uh, and and consequently sort of terrifying uh, figure that was out there and even at the earlier work you know uh, I remember at high school doing grappling with the, you know the water engine or duck variations and David was you know amazing and um, and so you know all this to say that to kind of get a chance to work with him in this completely sort of intimate way was. Um, was pretty terrifying. I mean, I, you know, for me, coming into it, you know, but, you know, I kind of learned very quickly that he uh, is just has this extraordinarily generous and sort of gentle soul to him and uh, uh, and was therefore very easy to collaborate with and and to work with. I mean, for most part, you know, there were times where he would certainly shut things down if you were trying to move things about too much, but he is somebody who was incredibly generous with me uh so just to the point that i was kind of i felt like uh that i'd met two two versions the kind of the version the mythological version that was out there and the real version you know bore bore some but limited uh relationship to each other um both of whom both versions i found inspiring um and uh, and engaging and have both versions influenced my life in very different ways but the uh but it was a deeply exciting movie to um, to work with somebody like that on, and uh, uh, even up to the point that we were going to get in the ring. You know, I've been learning martial arts. I've been learning uh, jiu-jitsu. He had been studying Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's several years older than me, but at a certain point, as lead actor and director, we thought, well, we've both been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Let's have a wrestle. Let's see. And so I stood on the mat, you know, we were just down by Santa Monica, and I stood in the center of the mat. We were surrounded by the entire, obviously, you can imagine the entire cast and crew. Uh, David walked towards me, and uh, and as he was, and I was sort of getting ready and limbering up, and he walked towards me, and he gently stepped on both of my feet, and said, "You've already lost." <laughs> 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 which, which was brilliant. You got mammoted by mammoth. <laughs> I got mammoted by mammoth. Totally. <laughs> well, Chiwetel Ejiofor, I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you. Chiwetel Ejiofor is the star of Z for Zachariah alongside Margot Robbie and Chris Pine. It's in theaters now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you've seen someone in a comedy who was great in the last 15 years or so, the odds are pretty good that Allison Jones cast them. She cast Borat. She cast Knocked Up. She cast Arrested Development. She cast the American version of The Office, Parks and Recreation, Freaks and Geeks, even for a little while, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Her job is to find brilliant comic voices, and she's really good at it. 
Allison Jones, I'm so happy that you took the time to come in here and be on Bullseye. Thank you so much. Thank you for thinking of me. <laughs> I, we've been thinking of you. I've been thinking of you every time your name pops up in the credits of basically every film and television show that I enjoy. Um, so thanks, thanks for doing this. Um, you are a casting agent. Uh, casting director. Excuse me. You're a, ca- you're a casting director mostly for comedy. Yeah. And it's clear that you have a real passion for comedy. What is that about? Uh, part of it is because the first casting director I worked for cast comedy, so I was able to start there. Um, most of it is about the fact that I'm one of six kids and everybody in my family was pretty funny. And my three brothers especially were very funny. And I have two older brothers that were always cracking me up and doing dark things that always made me laugh. And um, we had um, a father who loved anything Peter Sellers did or Walter Matthau, so we got to see a lot of those movies. I think it just comes from the fact that as a kid I loved whatever comedy was out there. Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In uh, – a local Boston show called Community Auditions, which is the best thing and not meant to be comedy, but the best thing I've ever seen. Um, Wait, what was it? It was it was probably started in the 50s, I think. It was a local Boston talent show way ahead of um, anything like American Idol would have been. It was just local local people from like the age of four to 94 who would come on and do a talent bit. And there were seven or eight of them a week. And then the public would vote for who would win. And then they would come on and be star of the day. Anybody from Boston who is in at least their 40s would remember and probably treasure community auditions. I have to, I will speak for anybody in Boston who doesn't remember community auditions. Do you have a favorite community auditioner? Oh God, I do. By the way, Sarah Silverman was on that when she was like 10. And my sister taped we all of us would rush rush home from church to see community auditions it was on sun on sundays um and once for a birthday gift my sister taped in the 80s like about uh, 10 hours of the show and it as it turns out sarah silverman popped up in there at the age of like 10 it was when i was just starting out casting and i think i sort of knew sort of knew who she was but oh god yes there's one lovely like 90 year old woman who came on there and sang um how are things in Glockamora? And then forgot the words halfway through. Uh, God bless her. But that was what we lived for. <laughs> Did you grow up thinking I would like to be a casting director? Oh, God, no, no. How did someone become? I, uh, accidentally, I was not cognizant of show business. I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, loved comedy, but also would never have any idea that I could ever be in that for a living. But um I went to AFI film school and uh, worked on the student films and I very much liked the process of hiring the actors, which I found it was called casting. (laughs) And a friend of mine, Lydia Woodward, who I had been to business school and who also went to AFI with said, Alison, I think you can get a job doing that. I'm not sure, but I think you can get an actual job. (laughs) So in those days when you had to write, uh, type out resumes and send them out to casting directors, I did that and I sent out... Uh, probably 30 or 40 of them, and then one woman wrote me back um, and one guy, and out of that I got a job. What what was the legwork involved then? Uh, Then, much the same. The legwork was, you know, calling agents, setting up actors that they would send you headshots for, hard copy headshots. There's a system called breakdown services where you would – then I think it went by the mail, a description of the actors you were looking for, and then uh, agents – and managers, there were many fewer managers then, but agents would submit hard copy headshots of actors and you would you'd get hundreds if not thousands of submissions and 
as an assistant, I would open up the envelopes to like midnight and pile them on the floor and Judith and I would go through them and see who we wanted to read. Um, and then you just read actors all day. What? How do you decide when you're literally getting a pile of headshots? Yes. Like, are you just like, okay, everybody with blue eyes is out. Like, what do you... I don't. I don't know. Um, I think essentially, you first look at the type. I mean, if you need a teenager, you're going to throw out the people in their twenties. Um, you just look at their type, and if you sort of like their look, and definitely look at the resume to see what they've been up to, and. Um, but it's first, obviously, since it's a headshot, it's just sort of if they if they fit the general type. And we would tend to read a lot more than just who fit it specifically as though the writer would want it because you have to you, you have to find all kinds of people. For comedy anyway, it's all about who can be funny or who is funny. There's a difference. You can be funny or you are funny. I tend to like the people who are funny. What do you mean when you say that? <laughs> What's the difference? Sitcoms, you sort of have to know how to be funny. You you are funny, but you should also know how to be funny because it's a fake rhythm, basically. I think it's not a a rhythm that you do normally in natural speaking. So that's what I first learned to look for. It would be like, yeah, he can be funny. Yeah, no, nah, he, he can't be funny. As opposed to now, which is mostly people who are funny. Seth Rogen is funny. I have no idea if he could pull off the sitcom thing, but he just is funny. Does that make any sense? It yeah. makes perfect sense, yeah. 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 It's the first time I thought of it that way. But you can be funny, which I call sort of fake funny. And then if you are funny, that's that's a real treasure and a real rare thing. Who's the first person you remember seeing that you were, like, thrilled about? Um, oh. It was probably somebody like Crispin Glover because he was so <laughs> weird and so unique. It literally was probably somebody like Crispin Glover. Um, Wait, what did you see Crispin Glover read for? Uh, family Ties. He, <laughs> he played, oh God, he was probably 19 and he played one of Alex's friends. Um, Crispin Glover was on Family Ties? Oh God, yes. Oh, that's and he great. was just as interestingly peculiar then. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Allison Jones. She's the Emmy Award winning casting director behind smash hit comedies like Parks and Recreation, Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Office, and many, many, many more. You know, one of the one of the uh, casting stories of a multi-camera sitcom that stands out most in my mind is casting the lead in Cheers, um, casting Ted Danson in Cheers, and they they had looked at a bunch of different people mm-hmm. because the character was a football player. Yeah, um, and Ted Danson came in, and you know, I mean, anybody who can't see the Ted Danson spectacular, you know, needs to get their eyes checked. And the guy's stunningly good. Yeah. But he's the least he, – like you could never in a million years pass for a football player. <laughs> I mean he barely passed for a baseball player, right? Yeah. And I wonder uh, when you're casting something like that, especially on a pilot, how much are you looking for something that fits this description that uh, a showrunner or a writer wrote? Um, and how much are you looking to just find someone who's really special, who's mostly like that – and just say, oh, this this lady is just real great. Like if we change 20 percent. I think we all do that as casting people. I do. I think. And the Judd Apatow's and Paul Feig's of the world and Mitch Hurwitz's and Larry David's will always go for funny before a physical type. So it's just a little bit of a um, 
adjustment I think they have to do in their head unless you – literally the joke is that he's an ex-quarterback and you can only get The Rock you know, or something. But um, I think we you always have to do that. The Rock will probably do a good yeah. job. He always does exactly. a good job at The Rock. Um, but I think you're always redefining the physicality of it anyway based on um, what they bring to the table in terms of comedy in, in the show Veep. Uh, Armando Iannucci had written the role of Jonah for someone sort of Belushi-ish, kind of um, diminutive but big and and um, a little bit crass. And then Tim Simon comes in and he's six five or six six and skinny and weird. But Armando, that's all he wanted was that after he saw Tim. So he completely changed the physical. Um, writer's descriptions. This is uh, with all due respect to every writer because I think writing is everything, everything. I, I tend to not pay attention too much to writers' descriptions physically because of the um, importance and the sort of longevity of someone who's actually truly funny. Why do you think that for so long, if you were a woman, the only way that you could be funny on TV was if you were uh, Mary Tyler Moore or Lucille Ball and you also were spectacularly beautiful in addition to being super yeah. funny? Yeah, that was a bonus, huh? Um, that happens once every four decades. Right. <laughs> um, in life. <clears throat> it happens once every four decades. Julie Louis-Dreyfus is pretty good looking oh, too. Oh, God. And so good. Uh, how do you think that gender differential plays out? Um, you meaning why it's expected? Yeah. Because I think men have always made this stuff. So when it's bridesmaids, which was Kristen and uh, Annie Mumolo, unbelievably well-written. But the women did that. When that credit came up and it was written by Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo, even though that was only, what, six or seven years ago, absolutely uh, had uh, goosebumps because you just didn't see that very much on a gigantic comedy. So um, I still think the female role in all these male-oriented comedies still has to come up. It's still always just the female role. How do you cast a role that is – that's in a really funny movie that is a female lead, but the female lead is incidental. I mean, there are there are lots of great movies with great performances. You mean the wife of the male lead, yeah, just yeah. the wife and the which it usually is just that. Yeah, you know, I feel um, like it's a, I feel like it's a role that often goes th- thanklessly to Christina Applegate, who always does a great job and is so good and, is, and needs her own yeah her absolute own vehicle because she is so good. It is. They are thankless roles. I don't know what else to say. I think they must be. I can't speak for the actors themselves, but they must be thankless roles because they are always the female part, and it's still attractiveness matters to all these directors and studios. Mostly, um, it is like beating your head against the wall to get a studio to approve. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to name any names, but studio, various studios all the way back to 40-Year-Old Virgin passed on some ex- now very famous women um, who they just didn't think were pretty enough to do one of the supporting female roles. So funny doesn't – I don't think funny matters to them. I think I think uh, they'll say it does, but still they only look first at what they see. I'll finish my conversation with Allison Jones after a break. We'll talk about the casting director's role in bringing greater racial diversity to our screens and how colorblind casting worked in the office. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
Heads up, Hidden Brain is the brand new NPR podcast about social science you can apply throughout your life. Get a preview of Shankar Vedantam's Hidden Brain podcast beginning September 4th and learn about why arguments sometimes get off track. Find the Hidden Brain podcast at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedy casting director behind Veep, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Freaks and Geeks, and many other great shows and films, Allison Jones. It seems like at the root of uh, a lot of the success that you've had, and not coincidentally, a lot of the great comedy in the United States over the past 15 years or so is Freaks and Geeks. Oh, God. It's amazing. Um, Freaks and Geeks is a show that ran for one year on network television, um, was not a success, um, and is one of the best television shows ever. And it was a show that had to, uh, that essentially created a full ensemble of actors, uh, none of whom were well known. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how that job came to you and, like, what the remit was. Leslie Feldman, who is the casting executive of DreamWorks, sort of, I think, knew me from uh, other pilots that I had done with that age group. I had just come off of Roswell High, which was then called Roswell, where I had to see the opposite of the Freaks and Geeks kids. So Freaks and Geeks literally was a lot of the rejects from Roswell. And I had done a couple other shows uh, with that age group, and Leslie was aware of that. So, and then when I met with them, the the it was clear it was like they just wanted kids who were struggling. You know, the I've said it before, the kind of kid who gets beaten up a lot in junior high. <laughs> That's what they clearly wanted. And um, agents don't always, or then did not always represent those kids. So it was a lot of legwork, especially again in the female category. They don't always represent the funny. Not even I wouldn't even call them character. Just the funny girls who didn't look like cheerleaders. When you are looking for something mm-hmm. that uh, no one else has thought to value, mm-hmm. how do you do it? Well, that was a case also of of doing the breakdown and and sending out, you know, for lack of a better term, a casting call for kids who were geeky. <laughs> Or however we would think of geeky kids. And also authentically young kids. That was a very young cast. Um, and we did open calls for that reason too, which is how they found – how Corey Mayers and Judd and Paul found Seth up in Canada. Seth Rogen. Um, yeah, Seth Rogen. Open calls just for high, normal-looking high school kids would not normally be represented by agents. Now they totally would be. But um, back then, no. And it was just leg, massive legwork meaning massive pre-reading of actors and picking out anybody interesting from the breakdown submissions and reading on Saturdays and Sundays. That Phyllis Smith was my associate at the time. Phyllis then got cast in The Office when we were cast in the pilot of The Office. Did you know this? You didn't know this? Phyllis was my associate for many years, and when we were casting the pilot of The Office, Ken Quapas, the director, came up to me uh, on the DL, as the kids used to say, um, came up to me and said, let her read some lines because I think she'd be great in the background. I want to see if she'd be good. And it was like, yes, okay, great. So we let <laughs> Phyllis read some lines and Greg Daniels and Ken were like, we have to have a Phyllis in this show. So they gave Phyllis one line, I think, in the pilot, which we were dancing up and down about. And then the rest is history. So Phyllis truly is a good Hollywood story. Um, but anyway, 
where was it? Oh, Phyllis and I would work on Saturdays and Sundays and read tons of kids. Judd absolutely knew the value of having open calls and going to all these various cities, Chicago, Vancouver, et cetera. It was a massive search. So what do you see in someone when you have spent an entire day watching 150, 16-year-olds creak their way through a side or whatever? First of all, I think it's what they are like when they come in and say hi. If it's kind of offbeat or something, that's always interesting. (laughs) when someone like Martin Starr came in, he was just good. He he found a character. He could read the lines. He was perfect. We read him for a couple different parts, though, before we landed on his part. But I think it's mostly a combination of their demeanor and if they actually have some of that character inside of them somewhere so that they don't have to be funny, so they sort of are funny. A lot of these people don't have to be hilariously funny. It's great if they just – they don't have to be aware of it. But if they just are interesting and pure in what they are, then that's always good. There's a lot of people who can't read the lines. You just have to pass on that. It seems like a lot of comedy these days is coming more and more uh, from the talent outwards, especially on television. Is that is that is my outsider's perspective? Does that jibe with your experience working in casting? I believe so. I think that's absolutely accurate. Until I started working with Judd Apatow, though it had been done for a while, but still, until I started witnessing how Judd would work, it was always from the outside in. That's a great way to put it. It was always trying to make the actor fit how the producer writer. In TV, we call it writer-producer. Not, I didn't do many movies until 40-Year-Old Virgin. But um, absolutely with, um, again, Judd starting Larry Sanders, et cetera, it, came, it, was much, it became much more organic. It definitely from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. Sometimes it still is the outside in. Um, I don't do enough drama. I'm sure that's more outside in too. But comedy, it seems there's a lot more the actor can bring to it. And Judd will uh, form an idea of a character after he's seen a lot of people and what he – finds that he likes. He can practically just say hello to someone and know if they're good or not. And he's, he's good. What people that have come in to see you uh, that you didn't know who they were stand out the most in your mind? Like what were the biggest, what was the biggest like revelatory moments for you? Aubrey Plaza, <laughs> number one in that group, I have to say. Just so clearly an individual and a funny, inherently funny, unique individual. Absolutely someone like Aubrey Plaza, as I think we immediately sent her over to see Mike Schur for Parks and Rec, and he said, yeah, we'll, we'll write a role for her. She's great. <laughs> yeah, that kind of comedy presence or just presence in general, you can tell. You know, met Chris Hemsworth on a general years and years ago, and you can just tell someone like that is going to be okay. They're going to work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be okay. He'd always become sure. a professional log lifter yeah, or something. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. He needs to. But. You know, bless some people like Brad Pitt who used to come in for two lines. No no clue. You had no clue what was going to happen to these people. That's also the great part of this business. You just don't know. And also people who have come in are terrible and then they turn out to be brilliant. I shouldn't say terrible but like so green you think, God, how can this poor kid even um, – I think I met Juliette Lewis when she was 11 or something and she was just terrified to be in the room and no – acting skills whatsoever. And then like a year later, she turned up on a sitcom and she was fantastic. That happens a lot too. Like you have to be open to rethinking people. You really have to. 
um, and giving second chances to just basically unbelievably funny people like Robert Townsend is one of the funniest guys on the planet, hasn't acted much lately, trying to get things for him because he's so funny. I had the privilege of meeting him um, about six months ago, and he was still great and still Robert Townsend. So it's like, don't forget how good they are, these people. We also, I think Judd, Paul, people like that also have um, a very good respect for comedians from 30 years ago who are still, they're still so loyal and still so funny. You know, it's funny you mentioned Robert Townsend. Like, Robert Townsend is a particularly legendary figure in Hollywood, not least because, you know, he he created a, the, one of the great satires of the way that race works, especially in comedy in Hollywood. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about when you are working on a project, how you think about race and culture and what you are asked to think about by the people that you're working for in terms of race and culture. Uh, in terms of um, casting, yeah, like I mean, what a it, diverse cast. Yeah, what what does that what does that even mean in 2015 from from an insider's perspective? I mean, it, it, again, and you can cast almost any role diverse, unless there's you know mom and dad and and kids who can't be diverse or who who have to be all diverse or something. Diverse in this case meaning not white. Uh, diverse meaning what I assume the studios would think because they call other things diversity showcases. Not white, yes. I get the impression from talking to friends who are um, performers that there's a certain amount of white guy writes television sitcom uh, for, uh, that's about white guy and his two white guy friends. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, Network says you can't just have a show with all white people, so let's make one of the white guy friends a black guy friend. That would happen. Yeah. And, you know, African-American performer friends would mm-hmm. be like, I'm basically playing white guy who happens to be black. Right. Rather than a situation as with Seth mm-hmm. Rogen on uh, Freaks and Geeks mm-hmm. where, um, you know, you have this performer that has a certain set of skills and abilities and a cultural context that they live in and that informs the work that's being made. Right. Um, I think now it's mostly – it's frequently reflected in the writing. They'll They'll definitely sometimes – they don't want to make a show with three white guys and they'll say one um, – ethnic and then two white guys or vice versa. <laughs> yeah, really. Right. Um, no, you're accurate. They do that. Probably for a lack of saying how else do we do it? You know, there's no other way to do that than just to do it. But it's not It's not an edict so much. And also, again, casting directors, I think we've always been, unless again, if it's a family or something, trying to bring new faces into it, trying to bring, again, with me, that includes British and we had a few British people on the office, blah, 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 blah. The office was pretty colorblind casting because we just brought in whoever was good. Um, Stanley was not written African-American. Oscar was not written Latino. It was just a matter of getting that style of comedy, that kind of funny person. But I would say there's definitely a little bit more. We can't have three white guys anymore on a TV show. It has to be. There's definitely a little bit more than that, which is great. What do you, what do, you do as a – They're co- not there yet, but yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I, I don't – I can't um, – Speak for the executives, but absolutely they're getting there. I would think. Yeah. What do you What do you do as a casting director to find distinctive voices, and especially ones who otherwise might not, you know, who who might not be automatically folded into uh, the pipeline? It's persistence. It's bringing them in uh, as many times as you need to to get them that first part. I've done that for so many 
again, not the group isn't comics, but just sort of interesting people that you want to watch and you want to listen to because they're freaking funny. And they'll start out horrible auditioners. You just keep bringing them in and bringing them in and bringing them in until Judd finally hires them for something. Another reason why I like to do everything with these guys, because if, if you know if Judd hires them for his new Netflix show with Gillian Jacobs and they get a small part, they're good and they're going to be able to build on that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Emmy Award-winning comedy casting director, Allison Jones. How cognizant of you are you of the fact that as a casting director, you are in charge of the part of show business that most upsets performers. <laughs> like the part that is not the until right now. biggest trial. Oh, no, no, not, not until that right they now. personally I know, I hate casting directors, it. but like. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. I can't think about that. I, if I dwell on that, I just feel awful. And I feel awful about it when I'm reading kids for things. Because kids will come in and you can tell if they're naturally um, gregarious and they're. They want to do the audition, and then you have the kids whose parents are really literally making them do it because they're a cute kid and they want to make the money. And that's really heartbreaking. So I try not to dwell on that at all. But is it really? You think that's more than uh, – yes. <laughs> of course it is, Absolutely, I guess, Absolutely, right? yes. Uh, I would say that is even above – you know, uh, I think there are a variety of things that are lousy about being a performer, a public figure. But I think from talking to people, like auditioning for stuff – is probably even above, like, people saying you're fat or ugly on the Internet in oh. terms of trials of I know being it is. I know that in my head and heart it is, but I hate to think <laughs> about that. It's also, why I think, why I try so hard for somebody that we like just bringing them in again and again and again. Um, I, I, I find in this business today, whatever reason this younger generation – uh, thinks they need to succeed overnight. It just doesn't happen. And so you have to be patient with the fact that you're going to be brought in and brought in and brought in. And I definitely do that with so many people until they finally get that one line in a judge show or something like that. So I definitely do that. I'm, I'm always so happy when we finally we can hire Sam Richardson as a regular on Veep because he's freaking hilarious and now can't stop working. What are you most proud of in your career? You, and I'm going to preface this by saying you, s- you seem like a very self-effacing woman. And so I am giving you a hall pass to actually sincerely tell me what you're most proud of. And no one will think you're conceited. In terms of? In terms of your work. In terms of just the work. Yeah. I think in general I'm mostly proud of the fact that a lot of the people I had faith in at the beginning are now gigantic interesting, important, funny actors. I think consistently that has happened with me, and I'm very proud of that. And I'm also proud that um, Stephen Roderick, who's a writer, thought that casting was interesting enough to do a story about in The New Yorker. (laughs) Shocking to me. But anyway, most proud of the fact that I think that I feel I I can spot talent and that it's over 30, however many years I've done this, 30, 32 years or something, I can feel confident now in my instincts. I always have, but big thing about casting in terms of anybody who has to cast anything, directors and writers and all that, do not doubt your instincts. If you believe in your instincts, it's going to pay off more than almost anything else. Uh, if you're like up at the pearly gates talking to St. Peter, who I think runs the pearly gates, um, uh, <laughs> and like he, he says to me, yeah, like one – Tell me one story that proves that, like, you did something good in the world in in this job of yours. Oh, like, my God. 
what time that you like stood up for a performer that you particularly liked or, or really uh, or really dug deep to found someone that you like are are you really proud of? I would have to say um, I'm stuck. I don't know who I would say. You could pick some. Pick some. I mean, God, I, I don't want to say McLovin. That sounds so frivolous, but <laughs> I can't say that to St. Peter. God bless him. You can totally say, St. Peter loves McLovin. Everyone oh, loves McLovin. <laughs> Who doesn't love Christopher Mintzplass? <laughs> Guy's delightful. Yeah. Um, let me see. Let me name Zach Woods. I would say I, I'm responsible for putting Zach Woods on The Office, though he worked before that. But I could say that, that he is such a comedy vibe unto himself that he's continuing to keep it real and – um, he's so unique. I would I would say to St. Peter, Zachary Woods. He also happens to be my tenant in the condo that I own. But <laughs> <laughs> so St. Peter may have some concerns about yes, conflict exactly. of interest here. But that was way way after he got the office. But I would have to say, uh, my what else I'm proud of is that people will now sort of listen, sort of. Like if I'll say, oh, you should see – you really should see Zach Woods for this, they'll see him right away and write a part for him. And that makes me feel great. I'm mostly proud of being able to help these people. That's, that's the, the reward for casting is you, you um, see people's careers go off. I'm sure it's the same with managers and agents. So, Well, Allison, I really appreciate you taking all this time uh, off of your busy schedule to come be on Bullseye. Thank you very much. You know, usually people have something to sell. I don't, you're not selling anything no. here, so I'm, I'm genuinely <laughs> grateful for you to come in. <laughs> Allison Jones is a casting agent who's cast most good, funny things of the past 15 years or so. I mean, like, not all, but most. Thank you very much. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. There's this weird mythos that's been built up around the blues. Like it's this magic elixir, this thing that some kids from England could drink and become super rockers. And also like it only works if it's authentic. And what does authentic mean? Dirty, raw, uneducated, country, or maybe urban and edgy. And there's great blues like that. Robert Johnson was fantastic. Wouldn't kick Howlin' Wolf off my record player. But not all pop music greatness comes from a distorted guitar. Not even all blues greatness. Like, listen to this. If one day we have bacon Yes, and the next day Ain't nothing Ain't what I do. That's Jimmy Witherspoon singing some grown folks music. It's the blues circa 1949. Music for adults in a dark room. It's jazz, too, from before jazz just meant art music. You can call it other stuff, too, R&B, jump blues... At the time, the record business just called it race music. It's the kind of thing you want to put on when it's nighttime and you're melancholy and you're thinking about things. Spoon wasn't the only star of the 
genre. There was Charles Brown and Joe Williams and Amos Milburn, and more up-tempo proto-rockers like Wynoni Harris and Big Joe Turner. Add a little New Orleans, you've got Fats Domino. Add a little Church, you've got Ray Charles. Witherspoon struggled through the 50s, but he had a career resurgence after a 1959 appearance at the Monterey Jazz Festival and an album of the show. When I've been drinking Yes, when I've been drinking When I come home at night Please let me lay down and rest He made some great records around that. And he spent 10 or 15 years recording with a sort of mix of old guys from his cohort and young white guys who were obsessed with the blues. There were a lot around at the time. So why are guys like Spoon cut out of the casual history of pop. When we think of the blues, why do we think of an old man with a beat-up electric guitar or a guy singing into some field recordist's briefcase in a shack in Mississippi somewhere? Why don't we think of Ruth Brown or Jimmy Rushing? Too often, our culture makes black music into a dichotomy, a coin with two sides. One of the sides is the highest of highbrow. Everybody's on board with Duke Ellington or John Coltrane Wynton Marsalis, they're artists of superhuman sophistication. They are beyond reproach, hyper-moral, creators of capital A art. And then on the other side of the coin is the raw and authentic, the untrained vulgarian, the natural genius, dirty, scary, transgressive, emotional. They're where the white folks go when we're slumming it. They're possessed of some ineffable quality that's terrifying and tantalizing. Squares. Who knows where they got their skills? They're animalistic. Or maybe they sold their souls to the devil, but they're so real. And they sure can't get the party started. The great artists and songs that happen to fit those categories aren't the problem. The problem is what the culture does with the people who don't fit in those slots. Why was it that by the 60s, Jimmy Witherspoon spent half his career playing with white rockers who idolized him as a gritty, authentic blues man, and half his career at jazz festivals with white audiences who idolized him as a sophisticated, urbane jazz vocalist? These two poles, one reinforces the other, and it leaves the huge swath in between unrecognized and untended. If you're not hyper-sophisticated or hyper-base, you're nowhere. Too often, white America gives black folks, and especially black artists, two choices. Either you conform to our rawest stereotypes, uneducated, amoral, animalistic, maybe at best possessed of a nearly magical quality of authenticity that speaks to our deepest emotions or maybe gets us to let it all hang out, or if you can't swing that, you've got to try to be perfect nonviolent, above it all, the ultimate good citizen, always friendly. That way you're safe. I mean, we might be willing to canonize you, but first you've got to be a saint. ta Coates wrote recently, Urging African Americans to become superhuman is great advice if you're concerned with creating extraordinary individuals. It's terrible advice if you're concerned with creating an equitable society. 
The black freedom struggle is not about raising a race of hyper-moral superhumans. It's about all people garnering the right to live like the normal human beings they are. That's what I love about Jimmy Witherspoon. He sings the blues, jazz, whatever you want to call it. He sings it like a grown man, smart and together and a little sad and lonely, like we all are sometimes. As brilliant an artist as he is, he feels like a normal human being. That's my outshot. The night was black, rainfall in We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith, production fellow at Maximum Fun, is Abarian X. Perello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for our theme music. Go buy their records. Go Team. They're so great. Thanks this week to Manya Zuba at NPR New York for engineering help. And if you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or use your favorite podcasting software. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by the brilliant and incisive comedian Guy Branham. This week, the team look at plans for a new Star Wars park inside Disneyland, and they get into the Puppygate controversy around this year's Hugo Awards for Science Fiction, which is a much more serious issue than its name suggests. Uh, Check out Pop Rocket uh, wherever you download podcasts. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 